It's another Sabbath in first century Palestine, which means that like every Sabbath all over the region, faithful Jews are gathering in their local synagogues to hear the reading of the scripture and to sing psalms together as they have done for hundreds of years. As the custom goes, someone, at times a visiting preacher, will stand, come to the front, read from whatever the Scripture is for the day, and then begin to talk and expound on that Scripture. Having finished the reading, he will teach in a style, a a sermon for, for the day. The Sabbath is, this particular Sabbath is a hot and dry Middle East day, And some of the synagogue attendees will be dozing a bit in the corner. And the teacher for the day will wonder what he has to do to keep Brother Ben so-and-so awake on this hot Sabbath. At one particular synagogue, as Luke the Gospel teller tells us in his story, Jesus of Nazareth is the teacher for that Sabbath. And that means we won't likely find too many dozing asleep because it seems that lately everywhere Jesus goes, there's some kind of drama. Rumor has it, in fact, and people as they see Jesus enter this synagogue begin to whisper to each other, did you hear about the time in Nazareth? That story we find in Luke chapter 4. Jesus was invited to read and to teach the scriptures there in his hometown, his home synagogue at Nazareth. And as Jesus in this story, that story approaches the front of the synagogue and unrolls the large Isaiah scroll, he moves towards the end of that story. We call it Isaiah chapter 61. And in that story, he reads this from Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's a well-known text to the people gathered at that synagogue. And the people are eager to hear what this hometown boy turned famous teacher will say. Jesus sits to teach and talk. Today, this scripture is being fulfilled just as you have heard it. At first, the crowd nods with excitement. Yes, our guy, our Jesus, our hometown boy, he just might be one of these spirit-anointed prophets that we've been longing for. And that's got to be good news for us here in Nazareth because he's our our hometown boy. We've got to get some benefit from that, right, if he's the guy. But then, if you know that story from that synagogue in Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes on to suggest that, no, no prophet is really accepted in his hometown. And in fact, to prove it, he reminds them that in the old days when Elijah was around, the great prophet Elijah, and, and there was a famine in the land, there were all kinds of hungry people in Israel, and God sent Elijah out to a widow of Zarephath. And then he reminds them that there were lepers all over Israel, but God sent Elijah out to Naaman, the Gentile leper. And that's when the mood changed at that synagogue. 
in Luke 4. That's when the people got mad at their hometown prophet. And that's when they tried to push Jesus over a cliff, literally. But he disappeared and continued on his way. In that synagogue on that Sabbath. But this Sabbath morning, in this other synagogue, Jesus won't even get to read the scripture before the drama erupts. Jesus approaches the front of the synagogue to remove the scroll from its sacred stand. And as he reaches for the scroll, he glances past the edge of his prayer shawl and his eye catches something, or someone rather. It's a woman standing just outside the entry to the synagogue. She's hunched over. Way over. In fact, Luke tells us in vivid language that she is bent in upon herself. When Jesus sees her, he puts the scroll back down in its place. And he turns towards this hunched over woman and he motions for her to come forward. Now, of course, the gathered worshipers turn to look back at what Jesus is looking at. And they see her, and they, they recognize her. Oh yeah, the, the hunchback woman. They all knew her, but, but they were a bit surprised to see her. It's been a while since they've seen her. Uh, she hadn't been to synagogue for quite some time. She, hadn't, uh, she didn't even spend much time out and about in town anymore. Ever since she got like that, what was it, like 18 years ago? Wow, and now she's worse than they'd ever seen her bent so far over that she can hardly even look up. She mostly just stared at the dirt in front of her feet. We don't know exactly how this woman got like this. Luke says that she had a spirit of infirmity or or an illness. The word he uses, asthenia, is actually one medical professionals still use to describe a condition of abnormal physical weakness or or a lack of energy. It's not a very specific term. So whatever it is, this woman is exhausted. She is drained of energy and vitality. Over 18 years, this exhaustion has bent her over lower and lower until she is so cramped and hunched over, she can't even stand up straight anymore. And it's created a vicious cycle for the rest of her life, too, as these things do. Because as she hunched lower and lower, she became less and less acceptable to the normal townspeople. She was different. She was ill. She was diseased. And therefore, she was an outcast. The weight of it all had bent this woman in on herself, says Luke. And now Jesus is calling her to the front of the synagogue. It's notable, as Luke tells us this story, that unlike other stories of healings and and Jesus, this woman didn't approach Jesus herself on her own, nor was she dragged to the front to some kind of test for Jesus, nor did she have some friends who figured out how to get her to Jesus. In this story, she just happens to be there, hanging out at the back of the church, wandering the margins of this community, 
and Jesus sees her in the midst of worship and calls her to him. Perhaps, I'm sure, reluctantly, the woman makes her way through the rows of seated worshipers, past the women and children in the back, now to that holier place in the front where the men are seated. It's a rare opportunity for these seated worshipers to actually be able to see her hunched-over face, but she's too afraid to even make eye contact with them, and so she keeps her face, her gaze, fixed on the dirt in front of her bare feet. Finally, she reaches the front where Jesus is waiting. And I imagine that as Jesus speaks to her, he lowers himself to his knees so that she can see his face. And he says to her, Woman, you are set free from your illness. Except there's more to what he says than that, because if we had ears to hear the Greek words that Luke is writing, we would hear Jesus saying, Woman, you are loosed or untied from your sickness, your condition. It's what Jesus had promised to do in that other synagogue when he read Isaiah and said that he was going to unchain captives and liberate oppressed people. And then he lays his hands of blessing on this untouchable woman, and immediately she is healed. With the weight of of disease and rejection lifted from her shoulders, she begins to pull herself up straight for the first time in 18 years. And as her shoulders loosen and her back strengthens, she finds herself raising her hands higher and higher until they are lifted in a position of praise to God the one who has healed her. She begins to give thanksgiving and praise. And, and, and it's, it's a posture she has not been able to experience for 18 years, praise and thanksgiving to God for her healing. The crowds, say Luke, are amazed and they rejoice with her. Some are raising their hands in praise with her. Others are wiping tears from the corners of their eyes as they see this beautiful scene. This woman has been healed and restored and and the people are there with her. It's a beautiful feeling of joy in this room until a man rises from the congregation. He's immediately recognized. He's an important man with important clothing. He's he's the the leader of this synagogue, the head elder, the the pastor, the, the guy in charge of this place of worship. And Unlike so many in the room, he seems displeased or irritated or indignant about what's going on. And he turns to face his congregation and he says to them, There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, not on the Sabbath day. The people are still so moved and, and a little confused and there's, and there's noise and the crowd doesn't seem to understand what he's saying. So he repeats himself, says Luke. There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured and not on the Sabbath day. You can feel the joy being sucked from the room in this moment. Well, this party sure died, whispers one worshiper to another. 
And for the moment, this liberated, healed, restored woman is forgotten, and all eyes are on Jesus and their leader from the synagogue. It's a showdown with Jesus and the established religious folks once again. And when we read these stories, most of them in the gospel, the storyteller doesn't try to make it ambiguous. The sides are pretty clear cut. Who are the good guys and the bad guys? And this story has enough emotion for us to leave it pretty clear too. But for a moment, at least, can we sympathize just a bit with where this religious leader is coming from? After all, this man values the Sabbath, does he not? He wants to protect it, to do what's right on it, to follow what God has said about it. And can we blame him for that? He is right about something. This this woman's condition really isn't going to get much worse if it's held off for a few hours until the sun goes down. Is it really worth all the disturbance that Jesus has made? He knows what people are going to say. It's not a life and death situation. And the the laws about Sabbath are pretty clear. If it's not life and death, it it can wait till sundown. Is it worth upsetting more of these powerful religious people that Jesus has been stepping on toes all the time by bending the Sabbath rules, by offending the members of this church community? This all could have been done just a few hours later, Jesus. Couldn't you have have waited? But Luke is clear in this story that Jesus doesn't think twice about it. Jesus doesn't want to wait until tomorrow. In fact, he calls out the synagogue leader in this moment. He's not worried about the confrontation with this man. Things are about to get tense with Jesus and the religious leaders. Again, for another time, can you see Jesus stepping now between the healed woman and this accusing synagogue leader? You can hear the, the, the passion, maybe anger in Jesus' voice as he says, as Luke writes, you hypocrites. Strong words. Don't each of you, says Jesus, uh, on the Sabbath day, untie, untie your ox or donkey from its stall and lead it out to get a drink? Don't you do that? And if we know the law carefully, that's already a slight bending of Sabbath rules. Then isn't it necessary, says Jesus, for this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who has been bound by Satan for 18 long years to be set free from her bondage on the Sabbath day? Can you imagine, church family, being the synagogue leader right now in this, in this story? It's not, not very comfortable. Jesus' point is hard to miss. You, my well-meaning friend, are a hypocrite. You have your priorities completely upside down, inside out, and backwards. You, have, you, you are willing to untie your farm animals and take them to get a drink, which is a gray area of Sabbath law, and... You are not interested in untying this precious woman who is nothing less than a daughter of God on Sabbath for shame, (laughs) religious leader. 
Luke's words here in, uh, that Jesus says echo some others that Matthew tells us about when Jesus talks about hypocrisy. It's in Matthew chapter 23. Jesus says this to the religious folks, How terrible it will be for you legal experts and Pharisees. Hypocrites! You give God a tenth of your mint and dill and cumin. Have you ever tried to tithe your cumin powder? <laughs> this cannot be easy. They spend a great deal of energy doing this, but you forget about the more important matters of the law, justice and peace and faith. You ought to give a tenth, but without forgetting. I love that Jesus says that. You do. You should tithe. <laughs> but when you do it, don't forget, in addition, there's other more important matters. You blind guides. You filter out an ant, but you swallow a camel. Jesus, Jesus' critique to the religious leaders of his day is harsh. And it stings a little bit, maybe even 2,000 years later, because really one of the cheap shots that gets lobbed at us religious folks all the time, us church people, from comedians or people outside or whatever, is that you are all just a bunch of hypocrites. And it's often a cheap shot. And it stings a little bit because on many levels, it's not really fair and it's certainly not fun to be called hypocrites. But I think the higher calling of faithful living is to allow a situation like that or a story like this to be an opportunity for self-reflection. As parents love to tell, parents love to tell kids, right? Well, take it as an opportunity to, to consider this. Are we more like the crowds who join in the woman's praises of joy, or are we more like the religious leaders who stand and protest on grounds of violation of religious rules and traditions? Or maybe more realistically, most of the time, much of the time, we often get it right, and we are found celebrating with the healed and the liberated. But are there places, are there times, is a faithful question to ask when we find ourselves drawing lines in the sand and interrupting a celebration to remind people of the guidelines, the boundaries. In this story, the Sabbath, this cherished Sabbath, becomes sort of this watershed test, this dividing point between one group and the other, between the religious establishment of the day and between Jesus. For the synagogue leader, who surely has the best of intentions we can grant, the Sabbath symbolizes this bulwark that cannot be breached, a line that must not be crossed. It's a test of religious faithfulness, a marker of those who know how to belong and act appropriately and those who don't and don't get in. In this story, those kind of spiritual priorities are, are the kind that lead this leader to de-emphasize the urgency of this woman's situation who's been dealing with this for 18 years. He says, it's not quite that urgent. It can wait. Because there's some things we've got to keep traditional and right. 
And Jesus, on the other hand, sees the Sabbath as a very different kind of ultimate test. For Jesus, the Sabbath is this moment in which we can find out and practice and discover, are we, is this community the kind of community that exercises an openness to the other, to the outsider, those who have been wandering along the margins of the community? Standing just outside the sanctuary doors. Because see, Jesus kind of has this habit in the Gospels. It's one of those things that gets him into the trouble of, of inviting people into this club called the Sons of Abraham Club. And he does it without really taking a vote or checking with the other members of the club. He's going to do the same thing with Zacchaeus later in Luke's story, and he does it now in this story. The religious men of the day like to go around being proud that they were sons of Abraham, the chosen people, God's special ones. A tax collector like Zacchaeus does not qualify for the club, and certainly not a bent-over, hunched-down sinner woman like the one here. Except when Jesus enters the picture, things change. To him, this woman is a daughter of Abraham, a daughter of God. Jesus has warned us back in that Luke 4 story in that synagogue that this is exactly the kind of trouble he was going to be causing because he said he had come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Or in Isaiah's language, this thing we've been talking about for three weeks now, Sabbath sabbatical year or the year of jubilee the year of the lord's favor the year of jubilee as you recall is the year of freedom for the enslaved the indebted and the impoverished and the outcasts in other words the year of jubilee is like the ultimate sabbath experience for all weary people of the world who need to find rest. And Jesus says through the prophet Isaiah, I will be the embodiment. I will be the fulfillment of what Sabbath has been pointing to and promising throughout history. Rest for the world's weary people. Fellowship with a loving and gracious God. So our Sabbath-keeping church family and friends, 7th Avenue, our Sabbath-keeping at its best gets us familiar with this habit of celebrating these jubilee moments of joy. It challenges us, yes, and it forms us as a church community to be the ones who are there cheering on and encouraging and supporting any and all efforts that heal And set people free in a world that needs it so badly. It turns our religious priorities right upside down on their heads. From maintaining rules to celebrating the joy of jubilee freedom. Sabbath keeping does amazing things for us and for our community and for our world. On a snowy January day in 1961 that some of you may recall a divided nation paused for a moment to inaugurate a young president who had not won everybody's hearts, 
but many. And though divisions were going to continue and even worsen through the decade of the 1960s, the nation heard a few words that gave them pause and now have been echoed and echoed and paraphrased and reformed in various ways through time. Remember, some of you, and you've all heard what the president said on that day to inspire a divided nation. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what? What you can do for your country. And I wonder if Jesus is showing us that the Sabbath offers another variation on that theme, but a much deeper one that gets to the heart of the matter. Ask not what the people of the world must do to be welcomed into your faith, but ask what you as a people of faith can do to bring the joy of the kingdom to the people of the world. May God give us eyes to see and ears to hear where Jesus is creating these moments of celebration and jubilee joy. And may the Spirit lead us to be found among those who, as Luke says, rejoiced at all the extraordinary things God was doing.